On January 2nd, 1935, a man walked into the Hotel President in Kansas City, Missouri, and asked for a room that was several floors above the lobby. He carried no luggage and signed in as Roland T. Owen, stating he was from Los Angeles. He paid for one day stay in small bills. He was described as a tall, husky young man with a cauliflower ear and a large scar on the side of his head, perhaps a boxer or a wrestler. He was given room number 1046. Over the course of his stay, something mysterious happened in room 1046, one that covered the walls in blood. This is Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 5, Episode 10, The Horror in Room 1046. On the way to his room, the guest told the bellboy that he had originally intended to stay at another hotel, but he was put off by the high price of $5 a night. Upon arriving at room 1046, he took a comb, brush, and toothpaste bar out of his coat pocket and placed them in the bathroom. They both left the room and the bellboy locked the door and handed guest a key. The guest thanked him and then walked out of the hotel indicating he had errands to do. Later that same day, a maid went to clean room 1046. Roland Owen was inside the room and let the maid in the room telling her to leave the door open as he was expecting a friend shortly. She said that all the blinds in the room were drawn and that the only bit of light was from a small lamp on the bedside table. She did not want to disturb the man too much by turning on the light, so she quickly wiped down the furniture and noticed he had no fresh towels and reminded herself to bring some later. She later told the police that Roland seemed nervous, even afraid. As the maid was finishing cleaning the room, he put his coat on and left reminding the maid not to lock the door. At around 4 p.m., the maid returned with the clean towels. The door was still locked and the room still void of light. The man was laying on the bed, fully dressed. There was a note on the desk that read, Don, I will be back in 15 minutes. Wait. She placed the towels in the washroom and thought that the guest was asleep and did not disturb him. The next time anyone sees this man was at 10.30 a.m. the next morning when the maid came to clean his room. She unlocked his door with a passkey, noting the door was locked from the outside. When she entered, she was startled at the sight of Roland sitting silently in a chair, staring into darkness. The awkwardness of the silence in the room was broken by the phone ringing. Owen answered it, and after listening for a few moments, he said, No, Don, I don't want to eat. I've just had breakfast. Roland then started to quiz the maid on her duties at the hotel, which questions came in rapid succession. The maid answered each one as quickly as she could and finished cleaning the room. That afternoon, the maid yet again went to room 1046 with clean towels. Outside the door, she heard two men talking, and she knocked and explained why she was there. A voice that was unfamiliar to the maid said, that they did not need any towels and asked her in a gruff voice to not disturb them anymore. Later that day, a woman checked into the hotel and was given room 1048. 
At night, she was continually bothered by the loud sounds of at least one male and a female voice arguing violently in the adjoining room. She later heard a scuffle and a gasping sound, which at the time she assumed was snoring. She debated calling the front desk clerk, but unfortunately decided against it. Charles Blocher, the graveyard shift elevator operator at the hotel, also noticed unusual activity that night. There was what he assumed was a particularly noisy party going on in 1055, and sometime after midnight, he took a woman to the 10th floor. She was looking for room 1026. He had seen her around the President Hotel numerous times. She was, as he put it discreetly, a woman who frequents the hotel with different men in different rooms. A few minutes later, he was signaled to return to the 10th floor. The woman was concerned because the man who had arranged to meet her was nowhere to be found. Being unable to help her, Blocher went back downstairs. About a half hour later, the woman summoned him again to take her down to the lobby. About an hour later, she returned to the elevator with an unknown man, and he then took them to the ninth floor. Around 4 a.m., the woman left the hotel, followed about 15 minutes later by the same man. This couple was never identified, and it is unknown what, if anything, they had to do with what was soon to be discovered in room 1046. At about 11 p.m. that same night, a city worker named Robert Lane was driving on a downtown street when he saw a man running down the sidewalk. He was puzzled to see that on this winter night, since the stranger was only wearing pants and an undershirt, the man waved down Lane, thinking he was a taxi driver. When he saw his mistake, he apologized and asked if Lane could take him someplace where he could grab a cab. Lane agreed, but commented, you look as if you've been in it bad. The man nodded and growled, I'll kill that fucker tomorrow. Lane noticed his passenger had a cut wound on his arm. When they reached their destination, the man thanked Lane, then exited the car and hailed a cab. Lane drove off, having no idea that he had just played a minor role in one of Kansas City's unsolved mysteries. Around 7 a.m. the next morning, the President Hotel's telephone operator noticed that the phone in room 1046 was off the hook. After three hours had passed without anyone placing the phone in its cradle, she sent Randall Probst to tell whoever was there to hang it up. The bellboy found the door locked with a do not disturb sign out. He knocked anyway, and after a moment he heard a voice tell him to come in. When he tried the door, he found it was still locked. He knocked again, only to have the voice tell him to turn on the lights. After a couple more minutes of fruitless knocking, Props finally yelled, Put the phone back on the hook! And he left, believing the man inside to be under the influence. An hour and a half later, the operator saw that the phone was again unhooked. She sent another bellboy, Harold Pike, up to deal with the problem. Pike found 1046 still locked, but the Do Not Disturb sign was now not on the doorknob. He used a pass key to open the door, showing that it had again been locked from the outside. In the dimness, he was able to make out that Roland was lying on the bed completely naked. 
The telephone stand had been knocked down and the phone was on the ground. The bellboy put the stand upright and replaced the phone. Like the previous bellboy, he assumed their guest was merely drunk and stumbling around his room. Shortly before 11 a.m., another telephone operator noticed that the phone in 1046 was again off the hook. Once again, props was sent up to the room. He found the don't disturb sign on the door handle this time. After his knocks got no response, he opened the door with his passkey and walked inside. The bellboy found something far worse than merely an intoxicated man sleeping off a headache. Roland, still naked, was crouched on the floor, holding his bloody head in his hands. When props turned on the light, he saw more blood on the walls and in the bathroom. The frightened bellboy rushed out and told the assistant manager, who summoned police. The officers arrived and made a quick note that Roland was tied up and repeatedly stabbed about four to six hours earlier. His skull was fractured from several savage blows. His neck was bruised, suggesting he had been strangled. There was blood sprayed all over the walls, the floor, and the bedsheets. The room had been made into a virtual torture chamber. When questioned about what had happened, the semi-conscious Roland only muttered, I fell against the bathtub. Searching the room, the officers noted some strange observations. Roland was completely naked, and there were no clothes in his room. The room's standard soap, shampoo, and towels were also gone. All they found was a label from a necktie, an unsmoked cigarette, four bloody fingerprints on a lampshade, and a hairpin. There was also no sign of the cords which must have been used to bind Owen and the weapon that stabbed him. A hotel employee reported that several hours before he was found, he had seen a man and a woman leave the hotel in a rush. There was no doubt that, in the words of one of the detectives, Someone else is mixed up in this. While Roland was being rushed to the hospital, he fell into a coma and later died that night. Meanwhile, investigators were quickly realizing that this was no ordinary murder. Los Angeles police found no record of any Roland T. Owen, which led to the assumption that the victim had checked in using a pseudonym. An anonymous woman phoned police the night of Roland's death saying that she thought the man lived in Clinton, Missouri. The body was taken to a funeral home where it was publicly displayed in the hope that someone could recognize him. Several bartenders testified seeing a man matching Roland's description in the company of two women. Police also discovered that the night before Roland registered at the President Hotel, a man matching his description had briefly stayed at the Muehlbach giving his name as Eugene K. Scott of Los Angeles. Unsurprisingly, no trace of anyone by that name could be found either. Earlier, Roland had stayed at yet at another Kansas City hotel, the St. Regis, in the company of a man who was never identified. They were having no luck with tracing the Don he had talked to during his stay at the President either. Was he the man who was there with the prostitute? Was he the strange voice who had told the maid not to bring fresh towels? Was Don the man Roland had told Lane he wanted to kill? Was Don the man 
who had been at the St. Regis with him. Police had no answers. Nine days after Roland died, a wrestling promoter named Tony Bernardi identified the dead man as someone who had visited him several weeks earlier to sign up for wrestling matches. Bernardi said the man gave his name as Cecil Werner. While all of this established that Roland Owen was a very peculiar man, none of it was the slightest help in discovering his real identity, let alone the name of his killer. The woman's hairpin found in the room, plus the angry male and female voices Gene Owen had heard, led to talk that the murder stemmed from a love triangle, but that theory remained more speculation. Police were becoming resigned to writing off his death as one of the unsolved mysteries in Kansas City, and by the beginning of March, preparations were made to bury the John Doe in an unmarked grave. However, before he could be brought to the city's potter's field, the head of the funeral home in charge of the body received an anonymous phone call. The man asked that the burial be delayed until money could be sent to cover the cost of a decent internment. The caller claimed that Roland T. Owen was the dead man's real name and that Roland had been engaged to the caller's sister. The funeral director said that the mysterious benefactor told him that Roland just got into a jam and added that the police are on the wrong track. Shortly afterward, the cash arrived via special delivery mail, again anonymously, and Roland was finally buried in Memorial Park Cemetery. No one attended the funeral other than a handful of detectives. More money was sent with equal mysteriousness to a local florist to pay for a bouquet of roses for the grave. It was accompanied by a card to be placed with the flowers. It read, Love Forever, Louise. Have you ever tried to find a cheap hotel room and you open up Expedia, then you open up Trivago, then Booking.com, and then Hotels.com? and so on and so on, trying to find the best deal from all the hotel discount and booking sites? What if I told you you could do one search in one window, either online or using your mobile device? What if I told you that you can take all these discount search sites, combine them into one easy-to-use app, saving time and money? It basically finds the cheapest price anywhere. There are no additional fees, including taxes, and the app is free to use. What you see on the screen is the exact amount you will pay. Now, this isn't a separate booking app. It is a comprehensive yet easy way to do hotel searches. Think of it as a cheap hotel search engine. It simply finds the best deal for you. Savings are incredible, sometimes up to 70% off. There are even options such as pay now, pay later, free cancellations, no credit cards required. With a database of over 270,000 hotels, 46,000 hostels, 500,000 bed and breakfasts, and 1.3 million apartments, you will be sure to find the best hotel at an incredible price. Now, do you want this app? Find the best hotel room at the best price. Just visit www.experiencethis360.com. At the top links, you will see a link called Best Travel Deals. Click that or use the drop-down menu to get to a specific area. Links will also be made available in the show notes. Again, that's www.experiencethis360.com. Now back to the podcast. 
The case of Roland T. Owen drifted into obscurity until late 1936, when a woman named Eleanor Ogletree learned of an account of the murder given in the magazine American Weekly. She thought the description given of Owen matched that of her missing brother, Artemis. The Ogletrees had not seen him since he left his home in Birmingham, Alabama in April 1935 to see the country. The last his mother Ruby had heard from him were three brief typewritten letters. The first of these notes arrived in the spring of 1935, several months after Roland had died. Mrs. Ogletree later said she was suspicious of these letters from the start, as her son did not know how to type. The last letter said he was sailing off for Europe. Several months after the last letter, she received a phone call from a man calling himself Jordan. Jordan said Artemis had saved his life in Egypt, and that her son had married a wealthy Cairo woman. When Mrs. Ogletree was shown a photo of Roland by investigators, she immediately recognized the dead man as her missing 17-year-old son. Investigators were baffled. Why was Artemis Ogletree be using multiple false names? What was he doing in Kansas City? Who killed him and why? Who was this Louise? Who was Jordan? Who sent the money to pay for the Ogletree funeral? Who really wrote those letters to Ruby Ogletree after he was dead? Again, the police had no answers. The investigation was briefly reopened in 1937, after detectives noted similarities between his murder and the slaying of a young man in New York. But this lead went cold. The case has remained in cold obscurity ever since, except for one strange incident in 2004. John Horner, a librarian in the Kansas City Public Library, who has done extensive research into this mystery, got a call from out of state from an anonymous caller. The caller asked about the case and then said that they had recently gone through the belongings of someone who had recently passed on. Among the belongings was a box containing old newspaper clippings about the murder. This caller mentioned that this box also contained something, which had been mentioned in the newspaper reports. Horner's caller would not say what this something was. The call was then dropped, the identity of the caller unknown, the something never revealed, and the mystery still remains unsolved. Thank you for listening to Unsolved Mysteries of the World. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to find us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, or your other favorite podcast directory, and subscribe, rate, and review. We would really appreciate your support. If you haven't already, join us on Facebook to enhance this episode with photos, illustrations, and lively discussion. Look for our suggested links, and do share this podcast with others. Perhaps you, or someone you know, will have a solution to this mystery. This podcast is created by Cold Rasta Studios, and includes music and sound effects by John Savoy, Albert Ray, Gerardo Garcia Jr., Rana Szilard, Madia Cupelli, Alex Lisi, Martin Kahlberg, and Adrian von Ziegler.